Yeah. Good evening, everyone. I'm Steve Clark, and welcome to Brooklyn's TV and podcasts. I'm delighted to be joined once again by the former pilot and now author Michael Napier. Michael, for the second time, welcome. Well, thank you very much indeed. Thanks for having me back so quickly. That's quite all right. You keep churning the books out, we'll keep talking to you. <laughs> I th- um, I thought it was once for the book and second time to apologise or something. There we go. <laughs> On this occasion, we're here to discuss your new book, Cold War Skies, published by Osprey. Can I just start by saying congratulations on a truly remarkable publication, not oh, only you. in detail, but the sheer size of the book? Yes, it's quite, it's quite, you wouldn't want to drop it on your toe, would you? No, you wouldn't. Um, firstly, what does the book mean to you? Well, it means an awful lot, really. Um, what struck me um, at the time was that the Cold War itself had been probably the single sort of largest influence on the first half of my life. It was there all the time, and perhaps for me more so than, than others of our certain age, in that um, my father was in the army, so we'd spent a lot of time living in Germany when I was a child, and so I was used to all the structures of the British Army of the Rhine, uh, RAF Germany, and, and other such organisations which are no longer there. Um, so so it was very much that, you know, that, that whole era and, and the structures, both, um, both organisational and physical, which seemed so permanent then, um, have, have, have now no longer existed. You know, most of the, the permanent structures, sorry, most of the, of the physical structures even have, have, have been removed or destroyed. Um, and yet it, at the time it seemed such a, a permanent thing. And I suppose that the, the analogy I'd make is with, with Hadrian's Wall, that you go up to Hadrian's Wall, and the first thing you think when you get there is, I wonder what it looked like in back in the day. Yeah. Followed fairly quickly by, I wonder how they built it. I wonder what it was like to live there. I wonder what it's like. And then thirdly, I wonder how it was all organised. Who organised the Roman army or, or whatever? And so it, it was with that. I, you know, when you're there, you then think, well, I, I need to find a museum or, or a guidebook, and, and that was my idea really that I would provide this sort of one-stop shop, which covered the the air war or, or aerial side, air force side of, of the Cold War to give you a, a history of the, 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 the command structures of the aircraft, of how it all fitted in and, and how it fitted in also to, to the, the political background. Mm. So to put it all in, into some sort of context because um, military um, operations, military organisations, all, all those things do you know, take place, you know, they, the, the military is the tool of the, of the politicians, so all those things took place, you know, against uh, you know, the background of, of the political situation at the time. So that, that, that was the aim of it all, really. And my, my personal um, interest, as I say, was, was it, did, um, it, it did involve the first half of my life, firstly, as, as a child growing up, but secondly, as, as a professional, when I joined the, the Royal Air Force in the late 70s, um, that we you know, we were there with one aim really and that was to be there to, to fight the Russians you know over, over Europe um, and eventually I took my place on the, on that front line um, held nuclear QRA um, practiced and um, exercised um, daily and frequently um, to make sure that we would be up to speed and, and able to, uh, to to fight the other side if we were called upon to do so so to, to, to be part of all that and, that and then to see it all, uh, all almost disappear and evaporate over the last 30 years uh, I really wanted to make sure that it was properly recorded really uh, for posterity and also that, so that people c- to answer those questions that people will have when they, when they, when they start looking at uh, uh, back of that era and think well what was it like you know to mm. say well it was like this. Mm. 
Okay, perhaps we can move on to why you chose to divide the book into decades. Yeah, um, perhaps it's a bit of a cheat, really, but I, I, one could argue as to when, when the Cold War started, and one might say it was 1948 when the Berlin airlift started, or perhaps right in some, some time before that. But I, th I thought the start of NATO, um, and in fact 1949 was, was also the date of the first uh, Soviet um, uh, nuclear test, although that, that, that isn't mentioned in the book, but the, the, the starting of NATO in 1949, um, and then of course the end of it signalled by the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. So there you've got four, well, a very convenient 40 years, which again divides itself into a very convenient four decades. But within those, they themselves seem to divide up into, into different phases, really, that, that, that almost followed the, the, the decade. So that's how I did. I divided up in, in, into those um, four decades and then added on the end, because we had been looking at the, the forces of, of NATO and the Warsaw Pact, um, the non-aligned countries, which actually were, were all embroiled in, in the same political situation, um, you know, Sweden and Finland up in the north, and then down through Austria and Switzerland, uh, and then Yugoslavia, um, Albania, and Spain. So, so I felt those all need to be added in. So that was added in as a, as a fifth chapter, which then, then completed the story, uh, as it were. Um, I should say that, that it is the land-based combat aircraft, so I haven't really gone into the sort of transport aircraft side of things. I've only briefly touched upon helicopters and the whole maritime side, the aircraft carriers and things, something that, that, I, that we're hoping will, will be covered in, in, in a second volume. But yeah. that's basically how, how it all got divided up and, and why. Um, I feel another volume coming on. <laughs> yeah, another interview. <laughs> Michael, as a young lad, uh, myself growing up in the 1950s, the decade started with virtually redundant World War II vintage aircraft and ended up with supersonic jets. How on earth did that happen? Well, I think that's the question I asked myself, really. And uh, as you say, old Second World War aircraft, the Spitfire was in service with um, most of the air forces in, in Western Europe at the time, in 1949, and also actually equipped a couple of the regiments uh, of the Soviet Air Force uh, defending Moscow, would you believe? Um, the Portuguese Air Force still had a squadron of Hurricanes, so there were all these aircraft still, still knocking around for, for, from those days. I think the Turks still had bow fighters and, and things. But it was just at that moment or, or the time when jet aircraft had started to come into service. So things like the Meteor and the Vampire on um, initially with the, with the RAF, um, the P-80 um, shooting star, and then the MiG-15 and, uh, and, and the um, North American F-86 Sabre. And those latter two aircraft, the MiG-15 and, and the Sabre, were the ones that really sort of started things moving, uh, particularly as they were involved in, in combat over Korea. Um, and then the development sort of snowballed from there, really, in terms of, of, of jet aircraft, but also in terms of, of, of bomber aircraft. Um, suddenly from, from you know, the, the um, strategic air offensive, which had been from the UK across to, to Germany, and then had become that sort of leapfrogging across the, um, the Pacific Islands towards Japan, that suddenly the distances need to be so much bigger because you're looking at going from mainland USA across to the mainland USSR, um, I, I say it in that direction because, of course, although the Soviets wanted to do the same, they had not, did not have a history of, uh, of large bomber aircraft. So they had to start from scratch, uh, which they started by stealing the design of, a, of the B-29 and, and rebuilding it. Um, but, yeah, in, in that era, era, aircraft like the B-52, 
um, came out and the um, the TU95 Bear, which are uh, both of which are, are still in service now. I mean, they're, they're that well and robustly designed. Um, but as you say, that the on the tactical aircraft side, it fighters sort of got faster and faster and could fly higher and higher. And performance as jet aircraft and jet engines and and, and high speed aerodynamics were, were better understood as, as the decade progressed. So so the aircraft um, it improved dramatically. But but I think the other thing that's that's quite interesting is apart from the you know the the, the B fifty two and the Bear is that a lot of those early jet aircraft lasted for maybe a couple of years. You, you, the the um, Javelin, for example, in, in, in RF service, there were nine marks of it, which came out in the space of probably about four years. So you can imagine building all these aircraft and then scrapping them, and then starting again. It must have been tremendously expensive. I think the um, thing that has come to light for me, Michael, is having studied the book, the sheer number of aircraft, and you've touched on it there, that were built by both sides. It was... I know it was like a competition, but one country would build something and then the next one would build something even bigger and better. It's just remarkable the number that were being churned out. It is, it is absolutely incredible, really, to think that, that or to firstly think there's the money to spend on it, really, but you're absolutely right. Um, but I think it, it really was cutting edge technology and the, and the cutting edge was moving so quickly. Um, in terms of, uh, say, performance, uh, both you know, engine technology, uh, aerodynamics technology, um, uh, structural technology, and all those things, uh, and also tactical um, advances as well, as, uh, as air-to-air missiles, for example, um, came into service. So there was this sort of rush to, to, to make sure that, um, uh, you know, that, that each side had the best. Um, and that, I think, in, yeah, engendered in, in the sort of competition between both sides, engendered in, in this, well, arms race, really, for want of, of a better term, to, to, yeah. to make sure that each was, was you know, a, a, as best equipped as it could be to, to fight the other side. Um, and that's particularly so in the, I mean, it's, it's so right the way through the, the, the Cold War, but particularly so in, in the 1950s, a little less so in the 60s. And so it <clears throat> slowly, as things almost reached their limits in terms of aircraft performance. Um, so, so the number or types of aircraft uh, and number, sheer numbers of them was reduced um, as aircraft became more effective, as, it, as weapons became more effective, um, yeah. as things like uh, navigation equipment and things became more effective as well. So, uh, so you could be more accurate, you'd need fewer aircraft. Um, but, you, but you're right, I mean, it is eye-watering really when you, when you look at the, yeah. the, just the sheer numbers of types of aircraft and, and the numbers that were deployed across Europe and the United States and, and the Soviet Union, it's, it's mm. Um Before we turn our attention to the 1960s era, which as you said was really the rise of missiles of both air-to-air and ground-to-air, um, before we look at it in some detail, um, we've spoken about, you and I have spoken about the Cold War in terms of social fabric of the UK. Yeah. Uh, during this time, um, you made a decision not to cover it, which I fully understand and probably was a wise decision. <laughs> yeah. But um, however, I'm just kind of thinking back in October 63, uh, Wilson, the prime, Labour Prime Minister at the time, gave his famous speech, The White Heat of Technology. Do you think that was partly driven by the development of, of a technology in aircraft design? I, th I think it was because I think aircraft design has has always been right at the forefront of technology. Um, it, it kind of has to be because, and 
engines need to be light but they need to be powerful so you need to have a very efficient engine um, structures again need to be light but they need to be very strong so again that's something that's peculiar to to aircraft really because i, I guess you can build a ship or, or, or a train can be as heavy as it needs to be but um, an airplane needs to be very light so you end up with, in the situation where you're um you know you have to optimize everything you have to be really searching for for, for, for the next way across um or how, how you're going to, to solve the next limit or the, or, or the next problem um, similarly aerodynamics again as you get faster so you end up with you know into transonic and supersonic aerodynamics which are different from subsonic ones so it's a very it's a very different challenge and it is really right on on that cutting edge so i, I think invariably you know both the aviation and then the sort of space um, technologies are, 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 tend to be the leading ones um, simply because because they do require the absolute best of of everything in terms of performance and uh, uh, well performance strength and, and everything else so you're right I, I think that it was very much um, a, 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 did it very much apply to the aviation industry or the aerospace industry should I yeah. say it covers yeah. space as well and, and missile technology. Mm. Um, one memory for me in the late 60s early 70s was being taken to the Farnborough Air Show and watching and more or less hearing the English electric lightning climbing almost vertically into the sky something I'd never seen before you chose an image of the Lightning as a stunning cover photograph. Have you got a bit of an affinity with that aircraft? Oh, you're right. It's a fantastic image. And I, I have to say, I can't take the entire credit myself because it was chosen by the, by the Osprey designer and said, we're going to use this. But I thought, mm, yeah, that'll do nicely. Um, but yes, I, I do. I mean, that was, it was an airplane which inspired me greatly in my, my teens. And I thought, right, when I grow up, I'm going to be a Lightning pilot. It'll realise that, you, could, that yes, you can't grow up and be a Lightning pilot um that's me lightning pilots but uh, uh no i mean a, a fantastic machine and, and a really uh, iconic one and actually yes one that i would love to have, have been able to fly myself um i think when i got to that stage of training i realized it was probably a little bit above my uh, level of capability but um yeah what well, it is an absolutely fantastic and remains i think um you know really the iconic airplane from the british perspective uh, of, of the cold war really and, uh, and what a fantastic machine to have on, on the cover of the, of the book yeah and what a wonderful picture as well absolutely um, and, yeah. and unusually in um camouflage colors because notoriously it was just polished aluminium wasn't it that's right yes they, they, they started um that was all part of the, the lessons really learnt from the um from the first arab israeli war in 1967 uh, when the israelis um, ran a very very effective preemptive attack on the, on the Egyptian Air Force and basically destroyed it on the ground and the realization was that you need to be able to firstly um, harden air, airfields and, and disperse aircraft so that they're, they're under cover and they're protected but also to camouflage them so, so you, that people can't see them on the ground um, and of course because the, the lightnings were used very much in a, in a low, low level environment as well to, to, so that it was difficult to see them you know for, from afar when, when, when they're engaging um, en enemy aircraft. Um, because certainly, I mean, camouflage does make a massive difference to, to aircraft. You know, silver ones are all very well, but you can see them a mile off as the sun glints off Absolutely. them. Whereas dark, dark ones or in grey ones that we tend to use now tend to just absorb the light and you can't see them. With no reflection. Mm. Mm. Um, if we turn to the 70s, it appeared to me that the global air force is consolidated rather than expanded or contracted. What drove that thinking? Well, yeah, I think you're right. Again, the um, I think there are a number of factors, but one of which probably I've, I've touched on already that the aircraft became much more effective. Um, so, for example, for the the Royal Air Force um, in about 68, 
1969, they, they traded in aircraft like the Canberra, which was used as the frontline strike attack aircraft for the Phantom. Um, massive uh, increase in terms of performance, in terms of what it could carry, how far it could go, and indeed the navigation equipment as well. So if you've got a, you know, a couple of air, a couple of Phantoms could probably do the same job in terms of, um, uh, of you know, attacking a target that, that perhaps a whole squadron of Canberras could do, um, and that goes forward on to all the other aircraft as well. And so rather than, than what we've already talked about of, of buying lots and lots of airplanes to replace them every two years, suddenly we're in a phase where we've got very capable aircraft. Um, and so we perhaps don't need as many and, and we, can, we can, as you say, just consolidate on, on making sure that, we, that what we do, we can do very well. And I think that's where most of the air forces ended up in, in that period of, during the 70s. Of, mm -hmm. uh, of the, the, the equipment they got, they pretty much stuck with, although um, there was a rolling improvement program, but but, um, but but really just concentrating on the training and um, and making sure things like electronic um, warfare equipment um, was fully integrated. Because really up through the sixties, that <clears throat> very scant attention I think had been played to, uh, to, to towards electronic warfare. And then in the seventy three war between the Arabs and Israelis, suddenly uh, the effectiveness, particularly of Soviet um, Soviet. Um, surface to air missiles um, became very, very apparent and, and, and the need was driven to, to, to make sure the aircraft had um, countermeasures that, that, that had sensors that could detect radars, that could detect missiles um, and, and, and that could jam them whether they're infrared missiles or, or, or radar directed missiles. So the, I think that the, the, the focus went away from, from, from new shiny airplanes to, to making sure that the kit that people had did have inertial navigation systems that did have um, you know, electronic countermeasures uh, and all those things as well. Mm. You think, looking across the design of these aircraft, and because there were so many of them, do you think there was an element of redundancy built in when they were designing them that they only had short lifespans? I'm not sure. I think it's interesting, really, because some aircraft or some designs were had quite a lot of good longevity. I mean, for example, the Phantom um, was designed in the mid 50s I think it came into service just probably about 1960 I, I can't remember the exact date but but uh, it, I think it's still in service I think the one or two air force is still now and it's still an effective machine and but that was the sort of backbone of, of, of certainly the US services through the 70s um, and then the sorry, through the 60s and then the uh, many of the European air forces through the 70s and 80s um, and yet at exactly the same time, that's the same vintage as the Javelin, which um, barely staggered into the 1960s. Yeah. Um, so, so it was very much hit and miss, I think. There's, there's some aircraft, some types happened to, you know, the designers got it right. Uh, and, the, and, and there was scope to expand. For example, I've already mentioned the, the, the B-52 and, and the, the Bear, both of which were um, very capable aircraft and, and which were, in, I, th I think they're probably unable to, to replace them because they, 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 there was nothing else that had the same range and load carrying mm -hmm. capability. But there's so much space inside them that you could put in electronic warfare kit. You could change it so it, it could carry bigger and better weapons. Um, you could change them, for example, in the B-52 so it had a sort of low-level capability with uh, infrared sensors and everything else. So uh, again, yes, yeah, so, some aircraft did very well. Uh, the MiG-21 is another one which uh, which lasted throughout the Cold War pretty much. Um, because they because they were good solid designs and because there was scope to to expand uh, and others didn't do so well. I think it's probably one of those uh, dull, sort of theories of Darwinian evolution, really almost. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, those that could uh, adapt and, and cope did so, and those that couldn't were uh, were put by the wayside. Indeed. 
So we moved to the 1980s, which uh, I think were characterised by very agile fighters, all uh, capable of all-weather combat, um, and truly warfare turned into a 24-hour, 365-day affair, which I have to say was probably the most interesting period of the book. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting, actually, because for me, I guess because I was part of it, I, I looked upon that bit of the book and went, well, yeah, whatever. Um, and the the other chapters where there are lots of aeroplanes changing over seems to me to be a bit more <laughs> of an interest. But you're absolutely right. The 80s were an interesting time. Um, that was the introduction, say, of agile aircraft. Um, for example, the F-16 um, and then um, the MiG-29, the fulcrum on, on, on the other side of the Iron Curtain, which were airplanes which had massive um, thrust-to-weight ratios that had a fantastic manoeuvrability, um, ability to sustain um, really high G, so turn really well, um, and at the same time had you know were, were fast and, and um, were very very capable aircraft. Um, but also the time with airplanes like the um, the Tornado, which I flew myself. Um, which for the first time gave the NATO forces the, or actually not quite because of the F-111 been around, but um, the F-111 and the tornado between them um, with the terrain following radar um, and, and really um, high spec navigation equipment and um, the ability to, to aim um, weapons through the radar system. Um, as I say, gave it gave you the option to fly at low level, uh, which we decided we need to do to get below the, the, the um, Soviet um, radars. Um, at night or in bad weather when normally you wouldn't be able to do that. Um, and, and conversely, on the other side of, of the Iron Curtain um, aircraft, like the uh, SU-24 Fencer, had a similar capability coming the other way. So it was a time, as you say, when, when there was a, a truth of 24-hour, um, 365 days a year capability to, uh, to attack the, the opposition um, regardless of the weather, uh, whereas before it was pretty much daylight hours only and it was pretty yeah. much fair weather only as well. So you're right, the, the 1980s were the time when, when that, um, that capability reached its maturity and, and at the same time aircraft like the F-16, the Fulcrum were coming in that, uh, you know, a, again, largely in, at that stage during daylight hours because they, they um, but, um, but had this capability to, uh, to, to manoeuvre and dogfight in a way that, um, that really hadn't been seen probably since the days of the stop with cabin and things. Yeah, probably, yeah, you're right, you're right. Michael, I know you're very proud, and so you should be, of the orders of battle in the appendices of the book. Was this the first time in any book that that's been uh, put together? Well, I believe it is, and, and as you say, I'm very proud of that, because as I mentioned at, right at the beginning, I was trying to provide a, a, a kind of one-stop shop for, for people who, who had an interest in, in, in the Air Force side of, of the Cold War and what it's it, the information is, is around in bits but it but to actually have that all that information together in one place um, and to be able to compare aircraft with um, you know or, or, or reg, regiments and wings and things on both sides of, of, of the board with what they what equipment they had where they were based etc um, I, I think this is you know it, it, it's and important to have that information to understand the way that the, uh, the, the Cold War was was being fought in inverted commas. Um, but also, I think that those of us who were there probably still, you know, I, I know that I still have an incredible sort of loyalty or feeling of, of loyalty towards um, the, the units that I was involved in. I think it's very much the case that, um, you know, the people on in all of the services um, on both sides of the Iron Curtain probably do as well. So to, to, to have that recorded somewhere, um, I think is an important thing but but in terms of people who, who have an interest and, and historians um, who want to know um, how the um, you know, how the Cold War um, 
how it progressed and how it was fought. You know, that, that information is, is all there now. And Luckily, when we look back, there was not a great deal of human life lost through battle. Hmm. But there was some uh, pretty bad time through training and development. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, it is the Cold War, and one might argue it wasn't a war because no one got killed, which, and that isn't quite true because, um, as you say, there were one or two combat losses, very few, but, um, and we've recorded some of them in, in, in the book, um, American reconnaissance aircraft being shot down by, by the Soviets and, um, and, and a few other similar sort of incidents. Um, but yes, there was a tremendous um, attrition rate, really, amongst um, air crews just through, through training because we, you know, through, throughout that period, Air forces worked hard and trained really hard. Um, you know, made, made training as realistic as they could. Um, in a really, uh, you know, is a, as we mentioned, uh, flying aircraft at the cutting edge of technology, which, which may not necessarily have had the the, the, you know, the the easiest of handling characteristics, and to fly those at low level, uh, perhaps in bad weather, um, doing a difficult job uh, and demanding job, did actually have have a actually quite a high human cost, really. I don't know what the figures are exactly in terms of losses, but I know that when I was um, in the RAF in the late 80s, um, we were probably losing one fast jet a month, so probably about 10 to 12 a year, and wow. probably half of those would be fatal as well. So talking about sort of five or six pilots a year, and that's just that one service, um, again, at a time when, the, when it was much smaller than it had been 30 years previously. So if, if, if you draw that across the, you know, all the air forces, um, you end up with a big number. And indeed, you know, the, the, um, the Starfighter was, was famously known as a widow maker. Um, and I also compared on, on the, um, the Bulgarian Air Force had tremendous problems with the MiG-19. I mean, I, I think almost a 50% attrition rate with that. So when, when you look at all those, um, you know, all those problems and, and, and that, you, you suddenly do realise that there was a, a large number of people you know, did lose their lives. Um, trying to well de defend the, the front line as, as we all saw it at the time so uh, yeah it, it was a, it was a, a, a war in name but I think it was a, re a real war in, in terms of human cost too. Uh -huh. Michael it's been a pleasure to talk to you this evening once again thank you for being our guest just to remind everyone Cold War Skies is available now at all good outlets and published by Osprey at a very reasonable £30 an ideal Christmas present. Michael, thank you, and hopefully we'll talk again very soon. Well, thank you very much indeed. That's really kind of you. Thanks, Steve.